Fortino, no shot. Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores! It's Pula again! Canada wins gold in overtime! Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. When I was a kid growing up, the two biggest loves of my life were hockey and punk rock. But I usually couldn't find a way to love both of them at the same time. They seemed almost antithetical to each other. Like, the jocks have always hated the punks, and vice versa. So, eventually, the soundtrack of my childhood went from this... It is Gilmore waiting, waiting around the net, waiting, he's open! Gilmore! Solo job! To this... You gotta die, gotta die, gotta die for your government! Die for your country, that shit! You You gotta gotta die, die, gotta die, gotta die for your government! Die for your country, that shit! That song you're hearing right there, that caterwauling, that shredding, is the sound of Anti-Flag, a political punk rock quartet who got their start in the steel city of Pittsburgh in the early 1990s. And they're still going strong today, pumping out album after album, touring the globe playing to hundreds of thousands of fans, and penning songs that obliterate the alt-right, warmongers, and other racist homophobes. Now, a little bit known to me before was that their singer and bass player, Chris Barker, aka Chris 2, is a huge hockey fan. He grew up watching the game, playing the game, and while he's on tour with the band, he looks for opportunities, any opportunity he can get to lace up his skates and play some shinny or go catch a game at a local arena. But Chris is also on a bit of a mission to inject the same powerful radical politics that you'll find in anti-flag music into hockey as well. Over the years, he's organized charity hockey games to support good causes, printed t-shirts emblazoned with the slogan, Drop Pucks, Not Bombs, and now he's working on opening a hockey-themed bar in Pittsburgh to create a distinct and welcoming community vibe around the game. He's a Penguins fan, I'm a Habs fan, but we put aside our differences to talk about hockey, punk, and politics. Everything from the band's steadfast anti-war stance to the tragedy at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh last year. I really honestly loved so much how Chris traces a synthesis of his lifelong love of hockey and music. In his own words, which you'll hear very soon, he says, I was born in 1981, Mario Lemieux came to Pittsburgh in 1984, and Michael Jackson was making music at the same time. Die, 
Plus, in the later part of the show, we're going to offer our initial reactions on the horrible news we just got this morning that the Canadian Women's Hockey League is shutting down this spring. But we'll also offer some reflections on the first ever NHL game to be broadcast in the Cree language, so do stick around for that. Anyways, turn up your stereos, strap on your skates and your safety pins, and we're going to get right into our interview with Chris Tu from Antifly. All right, thank you as always for listening to Changing on the Fly. Before we get to our feature interview on the show today, just want to go over a few quick housekeeping notes. If you are new to this podcast, a huge welcome to you. Thank you for being here. Or if you are coming here for the 10th time, because this is our 10th podcast, whether you're new or you're a veteran, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast Wherever you find them, we're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. Hit the subscribe button and it is the best way to never miss an episode. Of course, tell a friend about this podcast. Tell people who you play hockey with. Tell people who you watch hockey with. And while you're at it, while you've subscribed to this podcast, please be sure to take a quick second to leave us a rating or a review because it really helps to get this podcast into other people's ears. Always going to be putting it out for free because this podcast is a product of passion, but there are costs associated with it. And so, if you want to chip in, if you want to see the continued existence of podcasts that take on the intersections of politics and hockey, head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com/slash changing on the fly. Even one dollar a month helps us out. I know many of you out there are thinking, ah, maybe I want to support, but I just don't know if I'm going to head over to Patreon and make that donation. Folks, it only takes 30 seconds and it makes a world of difference. So thank you for considering. Also, this interview we're doing with Chris from Anti-Flag is part of a mini series that we're going to be offering up, looking at musicians who love hockey and also have something to say about the state of the world. On our next episode, after this one, you're going to hear from George Samoleski of the legendary prairie and narco-punk band Propagandi. We've got a lot more stuff up our sleeve. And finally, Changing on the Fly is a proud member of the Upford Network of Podcasts. Be sure to find your new favorite podcast at upfordnetwork.com. All right, let's get into it. I'm on the line right now with uh, Chris Barker, who is one of the lead vocalists and the bassist of the long-running political radical punk band from Pittsburgh, Anti-Flag. Chris, welcome to the program. 
very, very glad to finally talk to you. Yeah, so we're going to be chatting a lot today about punk, about politics, about hockey, all things near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, we were just joking because, you know, it's it's hella cold in Pittsburgh where you are. It's cold up here in Montreal. One of the things these days that's actually been really, like, bumming me out about Montreal winters is it used to be cold enough that it was amazing for outdoor hockey here in Montreal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... You know, kids in Canada, like there's this stereotype, and I've probably like said this way too many times on my show, but we, you know, we learned to skate before we learned to walk, and everyone plays pond hockey growing up. But like, one thing that's so shitty is like the last few winters, it's like the weather is completely unpredictable. So it'll be like minus 20 Celsius one day, and then the next day it'll go above freezing, and it's all like that, summer. Would, yeah. yeah, and then all the yeah. rinks will melt and it'll start yeah. raining. So yeah, we we have that we have that same issue too, um, where like for for us though um, we don't have outdoor rinks, but we do have some ponds that will freeze, and a few of us that are in the know know where to go when the weather is right for those. Mm. Um, and then our outdoor rinks that we do have, like a few of the parks have them. Um, for certain time frames, but they have cooling systems too, you know, just like not as elaborate as the ones in the indoor rinks. So it does, it can just be 40, uh, which I guess would be, you know, I don't know, five or something. Yeah. A little bit of, (laughs) and they, so they don't need like, like we need like negative temperatures running for a while before things, the outdoor stuff freezes. But, um, that's one of my favorite things about touring Canada in the winter is I do travel with my gear whenever we tour. And, um, I've had some really great experiences and met a lot of really, really cool people. Um, just going into like late night outdoor shinny games on either ponds or just like, you know, in Toronto, there's like, you can't spit without hitting an outdoor rink. Um, um, I played one really amazing, like it was almost like a shinny tournament in Sault Ste. Marie where so like I was there all day by myself. And then as soon as it got dark, like it was like a, it was like an 80s movie where people were just coming out of the shadows towards the rink. And I kind of got really intimidated. Wow. And then there was like 50 people before I knew it. We all threw sticks in. And then divvied us up into teams and we had like a literal tournament, like an elimination (laughs) tournament of outdoor shinny. It was it was so crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, one thing I wanted to like kind of get out at the outset before we dive really deep into it is, of course, you're from Pittsburgh and naturally you are a Pittsburgh Penguins fan. I'm a huge Montreal Canadiens fan. Um could we like ever be friends? Is is that a possibility? Is there a realm? Are we like natural sworn enemies? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so, so my thing, and maybe this is my, this is, you know, getting into the other half of the conversation. My socialism knows no bounds. So <laughs> I, I love and respect all ice hockey franchises. Um, and so based on that, there are none that I hate other than the Philadelphia Flyers. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> but even still, um, my great Montreal friend, uh, Hugo Moody, um, he 
is a Flyers fan, and I tolerate him. We've even played his festival. <laughs> wow. I didn't even know that Hugo wasn't a Montreal Canadiens fan, so that's like... No, yeah, he does love the Canadiens, I believe, but the Flyers are his team. Ron Hextall is his guy. I think that's who got him into hockey. Wow. Um, yeah, so he's got some strange story, some connection to the Flyers. But for me, um, like I said, I, I they're the only... That's the only vibe I can't fuck with. Um, but yeah. uh, but other than that, you know, I've been to them all. Like I've gone to KHL games and loved it. I've gone to DEL games in Germany and loved it. Um, nice. I've been to the ha- uh, to the Bell Center um, when we played there with Billy Talent. Um, the Canadians played the Penguins the night before our show, and they let us watch from the press box. Which oh, that's was perfect. Like, but like. Have you ever been to the Bell Center one? It's like yeah. a, it's like that track above the rink. It was the coolest experience of my life looking down on, on the ice from that high up. It was oh, very, wow. it was very cool. Yeah. Um, oh well, I've been to the I've been to the Bell Center, but I've never been up in the press box actually. So I can imagine yeah. that'd be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's this really strange thing where they have like, it's almost like a you know, a, a, it looks like a track. It's just like around the entire rink. And they have de- like a like a uh, uh, like almost a bar, and you sit and you just look straight down on nice. the rink, and it's it's unbelievable to watch plays develop. Um, the Penguins did win that night, so we weren't friends that night. But <laughs> other than that, we're great. Now I don't want to push you too much on the whole you know Philly Flyers thing, but what do you make of Gritty? Like this <laughs> amazing mascot, the anti-fascist yeah. icon. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really funny. So um, um, this weekend, um, speaking of one of our mutual friends, Ryan Harvey, um, we played a festival or a a benefit show in um, Washington, D.C. for Rejova. Um, Mm. It's this um, this place in Syria uh, uh, along the border of Turkey where folks have kind of reclaimed their independence and created a, a, a democratic state mm-hmm. and the it's Kurdish, a lot of these uh, resistance there yeah. yeah 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 and um and so we did a benefit to send those folks some money and they had these really great gritty the anarchists in dc had these great gritty t-shirts that they were selling <laughs> as a benefit there um but they put the fucking flyers logo on the front and i was like well i can't have that uh. now <laughs> so so there is a there is a fine line i love gritty i back him uh as a um as a i don't know animal of the people or whatever he is but um <laughs> that again as soon as the flyers logo is involved we, he can fuck right off <laughs> yeah no i i feel you i feel you if like the toronto maple leafs or the boston bruins who are like our biggest rivals if they ever put out like an amazing anti-fascist or anti-racist mascot um i i think i would feel a little conflicted if uh yeah if it had a bruins or a leafs logo on it let me tell you between between you and i um maybe toronto but not boston (laughs) (laughs) those folks are gonna have a a walking donald trump uh uh uh, mascot before they have an anti-fascist mascot yeah i feel you (laughs) All right. Well, let's rewind a bit. Um, maybe tell us like a little bit about yourself, your life, and how you came to music, but also how you came to hockey and how these yeah. two things have kind of intersected for you. Well, they both kind of happened at the same time um, because I, I was born um, in 1981 
and Mary Lemieux came to Pittsburgh in 1984 and Michael Jackson made music around the same time. And so, um, so that's where I fell in love with, with, with music was Michael Jackson as a little kid. And that's where I fell in love with hockey with Mario Lemieux. And, um, I, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't until they started winning, um, that I was like conscious of what ice hockey was, you know, mm. um, and you know that that's pretty infectious. So yeah. uh, they must have been a little kid, like when they won yeah. their first couple cups in the early nineties. Yeah, ninety one, ninety two. I was I was nine nine years old. So um, it was huge on me. And um, I remember um, I was playing a lot of street hockey and getting involved in ice hockey at that time. And uh, they won the first cup, and they they I wasn't allowed to go to the parade. And they release. I watched it on TV, and they released all these black and gold balloons up into the sky. And I came home from school, and there was a gold balloon in my front yard. It had floated up and deflated and landed there. And <laughs> I was convinced that I was meant to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> um, I still have a little bit of time left, but the window has closed pretty fucking off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that was really it. I mean, Mario was so important to the town. Um, and he changed the the nature and the scope of Pittsburgh uh, and Pittsburgh sports um, because before then, you know, it was people wanted to be Terry Bradshaw and everybody was throwing a football around. And then um, when he came, it became everyone had a hockey stick and everyone was playing street hockey. It was pretty impressive to see. Yeah. And now, so of course, like, you know, you play in this, you know, kind of a, I'm going to say legendary punk band because, I mean, I I grew up listening to Anti-Flag. Like, I remember hearing, you know, You're Gonna Die for the Government, like, way back when I was in high school and, and how much that song changed me. And But what's interesting for me is, like, my trajectory might be a bit like yours in the sense that I grew up playing hockey. I grew up as a huge hockey fan. And then I got really into punk rock as a teenager, but kind of felt like those two forces, those two things in my life were kind of incompatible, right? Because you have, like, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a cliche thing, right? Like, the jocks and the punks. And you always yeah. think that they're, like, two really distinct categories that are, like, sworn enemies that can never be friends. Kind of like Penguins fans and Flyers fans. Uh, <laughs> except neither or one of those sides normally isn't into to punk and so like did you ever see those two things as like incompatible in your life yeah so that's an interesting thing and i and i and i i do want to um take a little sidebar here where i feel like for you as a canadian it's a little different hmm. because um american football is the jock sport oh. um Whereas in Canada, ice hockey is the jock sport. Mm-hmm. And so I've found that as I, especially like early on, as I professed my love of ice hockey while we were touring in Canada, people would say, how could you do that? These are such fucking ignorant pricks. These are the bane of my existence. They beat me up all through high school. And I remember the hockey folks when I grew up, we were kind of outsiders from um, – the cool kids who were the football players and the, you know, uh, even baseball players were definitely more, ma- had more machismo to them. Um, but that does not mean that when I was 16 years old and I found the dead Kennedys and then my coach yelled at me, I wasn't like, you're the man, fuck you, <laughs> because that's exactly what I did. So, 
there was definitely a falling out of love with ice hockey, but that was also because I had fallen so much in love with punk rock and music had become such a huge part of my life. And um, literally, I played my last high school ice hockey game and then started learning anti-flag songs to join the band at the end of 98. So it just won one passion consumed the other. And, yeah. um, uh, uh, and so then before I knew it, I was touring and playing ice hockey was a thing that you couldn't do. You know, I didn't, I didn't put it together until, uh, a little bit later, like the early mid two thousands when I was like, Oh, this is the thing that was a huge part of my life. I'm going to try it again. And, um, I realized that I could do both. And now I do both way too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, that, I mean, that's really interesting, the point you brought up, because it's like, you know, um, I don't think a lot about the cultural differences between hockey in Canada versus in the US. You know, it's even interesting to hear you say like the term ice hockey, right? Like not a lot of people up here say ice hockey, because it's yeah. kind of assumed that if you say hockey, you probably mean ice hockey, whereas like, you know, maybe in other countries, it could be field hockey or like ball hockey yeah. or yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, so that kind of brings me to my next question is I wanted to talk a little bit more specifically about Pittsburgh. Um, I've never uh, been to Pittsburgh, unfortunately. But um, what's what's Pittsburgh like as a hockey town? Can you tell us a little bit of what about what what hockey culture is like there? And I know, I know Pittsburgh, you know, has a reputation of being like a proud working class city, you know, formerly like, a steel city and i'm wondering if if it's got like a distinct working class culture there like it does in some other cities well i think that 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 for the old guard absolutely you know um there are so many folks that had their lives completely altered in ways that were incomprehensible when the steel mills shut down and the organizing that went into, um, uh, uh, you know, things like the Homestead Steel Strike, um, things like um, uh, the 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 workers' movements of the '70s in Pittsburgh, these things are forever ingrained in us. So when I kind of came up, um, I had an uncle who worked in a steel mill. He he just cleaned up. He was a you know, a janitor for lack of a better term. And that's the same uncle who gave me my first guitar. Um, he, like my mother was an Italian immigrant. My mom came to, to the States when she was 13 from Italy on a boat, um, with her, uh, her five other sisters. And, um, one of those sisters, my, my, my aunt, she, um, met her husband on the first day they were there or some some crazy story where he walks across the street and says i'm gonna marry you and before you know it, they're <laughs> married and and like and you know you're just like what the fuck how does that even happen in the world but um um but subsequently you know he he was so um i don't want to say grateful but so impacted by the freedoms that he got when he came to america um that, you know, 
Elvis was his favorite thing. American rock and roll was his favorite thing. Mm -hmm. And when he was stationed in the military, you know, he started a band and started playing rock and roll, had this guitar, brought it home. I found it in the laundry room one day. Um, And so my politics and my music were influenced by the same person. And I think that that kind of led to always kind of being like feeling unfulfilled from uh, a lot of the music that I was being told to listen to at a young age and continually searching. And then you find punk rock and you find this this thing that kind of encapsulates all those feelings. And so I think that a lot of people in Pittsburgh have that same story where someone in their life, they saw struggle or they saw um, real hardship and um, they wanted to to carry that with them. And so I think that that goes into all the things, you know, with like um, now that the universities and the hospitals are what drives the engine of Pittsburgh today, there's still so many people that reside here that were from that era that that hold that badge um, mm-hmm. kind of proudly that they survived. Um, and so I think that 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 works to the same thing with, you know, people that like Pittsburgh sports where we hold on to eras we you know we're very well aware of our history and i think that um uh, i think that's just kind of the the overall um the overall agenda of the city is to carry that burden with us come out on the other side there's a, like a lot of big grandiose um uh talk from pittsburghers where we're like we came out of it. Look at us now, you know, mm-hmm. and and now there's articles saying Pittsburgh's the next Brooklyn or whatever. And you're just like, OK, well, yeah, don't fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Of course. So, yeah. And so um, it's, it's an interesting time for sure. Yeah. And then, you know, speaking of interesting times, I mean, there's definitely been like a, a renaissance for the Penguins and over the last decade. Uh, I think like, yeah, three Stanley Cups over the last 10 years, of course, like the Crosby years, you know, having Malkin on the team, having so many amazing players. I mean, for me, watching Matt Murray in net was like mm-hmm. so exciting. Um, I'm, I'm going to show a little bit of my love for the Penguins here because I do appreciate the team, you know, even though uh, if they get into the playoffs with the Canadians, of course, they do become our enemy. Um, <laughs> but like, no, but it's I got to admit, it's been exciting watching them win cups uh, over the last few years. And one thing that I think is interesting is if you look at teams that have won Stanley Cups over the last 20 years, especially, you know, since the NHL has really expanded across the U.S., there's cities like, you know, Vegas got into uh, the Stanley Cup finals last year. And I know like, okay, yes, people say they do have a dedicated fan base there, but you could make the argument that in cities like, you know, L.A. where they've won the cup, uh, you know, in recent years or in Vegas where they had a deep playoff run. Um, hockey is, of course, not the only show in town, right? Like people yeah, have yeah. a million other things they could pay attention to. Um, I get the impression. I don't know. Now, this is not to say at all that Pittsburgh is a boring city, but I get the impression that the Penguins are a real thing there and that people actually do care. And so what, what's that been like over the last 10 years, you know, with this you know, Stanley Cup winning team and having that at the heart of the city. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, so we've got a lot of things going on. You know, uh, um, there are folks in in Pittsburgh who the Pittsburgh Steelers are the end all be all of mm-hmm. everything. I mean, you go to work to make money 
so that you can watch the Steelers on Sunday. Right. <laughs> you know, like, like, and that's it. And then you buy a car and you put Steelers paraphernalia all over it. And that's it. Yeah. The Penguins are a little bit different. They've always been outsiders. Um, but we have this thing um, in this town of 300,000 people where the Steelers have six Super Bowls and they have the most um, now tied with the New England Patriots of all time. And then you have the Pittsburgh Pirates who had Roberto Clemente and we are family in this amazing history of the 70s where they in maybe the golden era of baseball were the ultimate team. And then you have the Penguins who have always been kind of second fiddle to whatever was happening there, but they fill the gaps. Like when the Steelers are winning, this the Penguins are terrible. When the Pirates were winning, you know, the Penguins were the worst team uh, <laughs> uh, uh, in uh, in the NHL. So right. there's this ebb and flow to Pittsburgh sports, but ultimately it comes down to Pittsburgh sports. So I I I, I think that that's really you're right. You know, we don't have we don't have um, the same glitz and glamour as many cities in America do that also house uh, National Hockey League teams. But um, I think that there is a because of that, there is a great affinity towards those teams. That's a that's a correct assumption. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted to talk about something uh, a little bit more heavy. Um and, and that's, of course, the events that happened at, at the Tree of Life Synagogue in, in Pittsburgh last October. Uh, this touched, I know, so many people, uh, of course, like the whole city of Pittsburgh. Uh, really, I mean, it rocked the whole Jewish world. Like for me as a Jew, I was, you know, incredibly moved by this. Um, so first I wanted to just like, I wanted to just get your, your feelings around that as someone who, um, you know, uh, not only it's from Pittsburgh, but also someone who has just like over the years, like spoken out against racism and against discrimination <laughs> and against anti-Semitism. Uh, take us back to that. And what, what were some of your feelings around that? Well, I mean, the first feeling was that we were in Europe and I was helpless. You know, um, it's like you can't go home. You can't go hug the person that you love that I'm on the phone with my partner and, and she's telling me, I never thought this would could happen here. You know, I see this on TV, but I don't think this is going to happen here. And I'm like, yeah, we have to do this over the phone. This fucking sucks, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so your immediacy is towards the people who are right next to you. Um, and how you can be there for them when they need you. But then you realize that like this reverberates, you know, around the globe to people like yourself and how do we have empathy for those folks that are, um, feeling, uh, emotionally drained by the new world we live in where, um, this kind of thing is happening at an alarming rate. And so how do we, you know, then, then the punk rock thing kicks in and you're like, well, how do we mobilize and focus and, and, um, make sure that our work is being put towards, uh, letting people know what side of this history will be on. And, um, I think it's like, it's a really, you know, it's much like any, um, um, 
kind of tragedy that that any of us face in our lives, the that first 48 hours of putting the pieces together as to what you're going to do to take one step forward. Um, everybody's got to figure out that for themselves and um, and hopefully have people around them that will uh, um, pick them up if they can't take that first step. So I know that that you know that's a neighborhood that um, that Pat, our drummer, lived in. It's a neighborhood that um, that Justin frequented often. He's got a song about the coffee shop that's like right across the street from from uh, Tree of Life. And I'll like, catch you again someday. On the streets of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania Then again, maybe not Where we can sit and reminisce About our younger years And now we'd stay in bed all day When you should have been in class Then, then in the night that There's night a lot of connections that our band has to that part of town I mean, it's, it's our home Yeah um, so, so it, it is a remarkable thing to, um, to be, a, you know, amongst folks who are marching towards and for, um, justice in America, uh, rolling back the idea that everyone should have a gun and can have a gun and, uh, can do whatever the fuck they want with that gun. But also then when it happens here and you're not just talking about, you know, mass school shootings or mass shootings that are happening other places in the country, it really drives home the importance of these conversations and the work that people are doing in activism to um, make the world safer for people. Because ultimately, um, those in power are just worried about sustaining their power. And uh, if we sit on our hands and wait for them to fix it, it ain't gonna happen. All right, well, we'll we'll move a little bit on just to like another topic. And I would say to our listeners, if you want uh, a little bit more of an in-depth conversation too about uh, the events around the Tree of Life synagogue, we also covered it. If you go back to episode three, we spoke with uh, Mark Bray, who's an anti-fascist historian. And so we talked about it on that episode. Um, but let's, let's move back to talking a little bit more about your band, about Anti-Flag. Um, so this is, of course, a band you guys have been around for a long time, I think, the band officially formed in in 1988 if uh if wikipedia is correct yeah no no wikipedia is incorrect so the band name justin came up with the band name in in 88 and he he started it with his sister um and much like you if you ever started a band when you're a child you just say like we've got a band now right. <laughs> so so that's what happened um and i think that justin is the youngest of nine wow and his 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 family um immigrated from ireland um and uh um uh, they're catholic as you can tell by their breeding and um they uh, you know him being that young 
his older siblings were into punk when he was just a little kid and into the exploited and black flag. And that's what he was listening to. And that's what kind of shaped his upbringing. So, um, his parents were amazing anti-war activists. They opened up the first vegetarian restaurant in Pittsburgh. Um, his story is unbelievable because it's what you would want it to be in terms of a person who, um, does political activism with their with their work um and their vocation you're just like oh man you grew up like this like that's so cool like i didn't find mine until i was much older mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. i was kind of an asshole up until then you know and then i had an awakening so yeah. um he was always around it his mom was always you know telling him to live the right way and um and and he listened which was which was interesting too he didn't kind of have a backlash to it. He had, he had always kind of done that. So they kind of kicked around this idea to start an anti-war band when they were kids and they called it an anti-flag. And then fast forward to 93 and that's when, uh, Andy, the original bass player, Pat and Justin started the band. The first record came out in 96, um, die for the government. Mm -hmm. And then, Chris Head and I joined. Uh, Andy left the band before Die for the Government came out in 96. Uh, Chris Head played all the shows on on Die for the Government. And then I joined uh, in September 98. And then we finished our second record, A New Kind of Army. So we've been together now for 20 years, the four of us. Mm. Um, But the band's been together for 25. Okay. Well, thank you for that fact check. And uh, we'll have to fact check Wikipedia on that. (laughs) And, you know, interesting, there's no mention of Justin Sane's sister. So, I mean, someone should really go throw that up on there. Yeah, yeah. Lucy. Lucy's badass. She's She's got some stories to tell, too. Right on. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, hopefully one day, uh, yeah, Justin sounds like an amazing person. Maybe maybe one day he'll come on the show. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, and he'll say, he'll say, talk to two about hockey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, I was going to ask because um, actually I was just watching an anti-flag video before I got you on the line. And I noticed in the video he's wearing an FC St. Pauli t-shirt. So, of course, like uh, a legendary kind of leftist uh, football club in uh, in Germany. Um, but, but what's been anti-flag? flags connection to hockey over the years has it been mostly through you or i mean i know the band has put out t-shirts like that say mm-hmm. stuff like drop pucks not bombs so yeah, uh, yeah talk it's about been that. exclusively through me okay. <laughs> <laughs> and now and now a little bit chris had the other guitar player um he's really gotten into hockey he had brothers that played ice hockey um and he would play street hockey with them when he was a kid so he's been around the game a lot but really like it's consumed my life since 2005 or six when I started playing again. And so it's crept its way into merch. It's crept its way, you know, that we had songs on the NHL video games because, you know, there's like really funny instances where we, um, when we signed to the major in 2004, um, a lot of things changed, you know, like we were making the record in LA in a big fancy studio and, people were coming in every day and and we had we had this manager and and she was doing a lot of work to get us positioned into places we had never been in before because all of a sudden when you're on a major label people kind of take you seriously and you can talk to cnn you can um have your music positioned in places in television and 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 video games and you know things that that without that legitimacy of 
RCA on the back of the record. We didn't have for some reason before. Um, and there's a really cute story where she brings in the person from the EA Sports video game because they really want to get us on the football game because the football game sells gajillions of copies. Now, this doesn't matter so much in 2019 because everybody listens to music on Spotify and doesn't listen to the music on the games the way it, they did back then. But it was a big deal if you got um, the video game. And so the they're, they're, we've, we're in the fancy studio and we're playing the tracks for, um, for the video game person and um, they keep talking about football and football and then I'm like, you're going to put this on the hockey game, right? <laughs> and they were kind of the look of horror on the manager's face whenever I kind of usurped her and pushed for the ice hockey game was was one I'll never forget. Awesome. Where they were like, "We worked so hard to get <laughs> this all in here," and, and um, thankfully the song is on both, so it worked okay. out. <laughs> right on. Seems every station on the TV. Well, just to kind of round things down, I just had a couple more questions for you. But one is uh, also, again, speaking of Pittsburgh, uh, I know you were involved in trying to open up, or I don't know if it's already open, but a hockey theme bar in the city. Yeah, we're still working on it. Um, there's 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 four of us that are involved, and and one of which is a restaurateur, and he's got a lot of things ha- a lot of things happen. One of which is a graphic design person who. Um, I work with um, uh, uh, on all the anti-flag stuff um, and then two other friends that, that work in, in town and do like really cool creative things. So so there's five of us total and um, the, the idea is still happening. We're just kind of like raising awareness of the plan and trying to almost Tarantino the idea so that we have an infrastructure in place and we have – people that know about it and care about it before we open the door. Um, I think our next step or next phase is like a couple cool pop-ups and some interesting things. But, but the idea is, is very comparable to your podcast where it is in an equal opportunity place to worship ice hockey, um, Mm. but hockey only. So there will be no other sports involved in the bar, um, just hockey. But the idea will be that, um, that everyone who's involved um, and everyone who comes to the door will have some knowledge and and an idea that um, uh, we are we are social justice, economic justice, uh, human um, worth and value is a big part of of the hockey bar. So um, that's part of our delay in doing it is we want to make sure that the agenda is known before we open uh, the door and people don't think it's just a cool place to go and watch sports but it's a it's got a mission statement to that, it too. all right right on last question i wanted to ask 
is uh, what's next for Anti-Flag? I mean, I know you guys put out your most recent album last year. Uh, you guys always have a busy touring schedule, but uh, tell us what's up with the band. Yeah, um, we're actually working on new music now, um, which is cool. We have we we did more dates on American Fall than we've done in a really really long time, and um, that commitment to sharing the songs has has been really beneficial to us both as a band. I feel like we're a better band than ever, um, but I also think that um, this record, the 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 rise of fascism across Europe, across uh, the West, um, I think has really activated people to be searching for and looking for um, music that's coming from an empathetical place or art that's coming from an empathetical place. So it's really shown a light on Anti-Flag and, and the fact that we put out what I think is our best record maybe in over 10 years um, has really helped um, um make us a viable voice in this kind of discussion that's happening right now. And, and we're really grateful that people are still paying attention and still, um, uh, coming out to the shows and being a part of the community. I think that, 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 that for us is always shocking and, uh, something that we never want to, uh, lose sight of the fact that we're very lucky to get to travel the world. Um, a lot of people that work in activism don't have people clap for them. And um, that's something that that we've been really focusing on over the last few years where we bring activists out to the shows. I mean, it's it's always been a part of punk rock to have people that are doing activist work come and talk during the set. But um, but for us, really trying to um, embolden people who sit at a desk all day and you know, even if it's someone who works on letter writing campaigns at Amnesty International, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the fucking wall and they don't get the same luxury that we do as a band to have this shot of optimism all the time where you get to play the songs, get to see people who who actually give a fuck and um, and not only give a fuck, but they're actually searching and wanting new ways and new instructions for them to get further involved in um, leaving things better than they found them. So I think that, that one of our main mantras over the last couple of years has been in, invite the activist world to what we're doing and make sure that they see that their work is not um, maybe as difficult as it might seem Monday through Friday. And um, I'm hopeful that that with this new record and um, with the, the winds of change feeling like they are, that, um, you know, we'll be looking at a very different 2020 than we are looking at a 2019 right now. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, let me just say, as one of those activists who is often banging my head against the wall, um, it's it's really inspiring to, to see a band like Anti-Flag out there that has the longevity that has just been putting out like no bullshit inspiring messages for 20 years, you know, against fascism, against racism, against war. Uh, I really appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. So, um, so big ups to you guys for that. And once again, we've been speaking with uh, Chris to Chris Barker from uh, anti flag on the line with us from Pittsburgh. Chris, thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Thank you. And, and, uh, and I'll finish by saying that, um, you're doing the real work. Uh, we we are very well aware that we are just four 
dudes with guitars <laughs> and that and, uh, um, that self-awareness has has really led to us um, um, you know wanting to take the time to say uh, how grateful we are for the people that do the real work to create tangible and long-lasting uh, changes in the world so so um, if you feel like you're uh, banging your head against the wall you have my number call me and uh we'll put you on speakerphone at a show and people can clap for you anytime. <laughs> right on and you know hopefully a lot of people out there listening to this are uh are either doing the work of justice or will be inspired to do that work too that's what we're always striving to do is uh, inspire the next generation of people to take up the fight so uh thank you so much again good luck to your beloved penguins this year yeah um, it's gonna if, it's gonna come down to the wire. Uh, we might be enemies, but it's gonna sure. <laughs> it, we'll have a lot of fun talking about it. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you uh, once again. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Welcome back to Changing on the Fly. My name is Aaron. We are almost out of here, but before we go, wanted to talk about a few things, some of them good and some of them unfortunately very bad. Let's start with the good. So on March 23rd, we witnessed hockey history as the first ever NHL game was called entirely in the indigenous language of Plains Cree. This initiative was the brainchild of Chief Wilton Littlechild, one of the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission up here in Canada. And he's also going to be a guest on one of our upcoming episodes. And basically this came to fruition as a partnership between Sportsnet and the Aboriginal People's Television Network, or APTN. The Cree broadcasters in the game were Clarence Iron, Earl Wood, Jason Chamakisi and John Chabot. And the game pitted the Montreal Canadiens against the Carolina Hurricanes. Don't really want to talk about the final score because it did not bode well for Montreal. But here's just a little snippet from that broadcast. So this broadcast definitely feels like a step in the right direction in terms of building reconciliation with indigenous communities by opening up a media space for their languages to thrive. We can only hope that broadcasts like this continue and multiply in several indigenous languages. And if the NHL is serious about their Hockey is for Everyone campaign, then they definitely need to support initiatives like this. Also, in other anti-racist hockey news, I just got back from Kingston, Ontario, where we had an amazing roundtable on racism and hockey at Queen's University, hosted by the kinesiology department there. Some highlights from me from this amazing day of panel presentations, of keynote speeches, were Bob Cole, who is an incredible black hockey historian now living in Ottawa. Eugene Arcan, who is a residential school survivor and indigenous elder who came to join us from northern Saskatchewan. And Erica Ayala, who is with the Founding Four podcast and another, you know, like-minded hockey broadcaster out there. I actually got to speak 
on a panel with Erica looking at media and hockey. Uh, she's just a phenomenal, phenomenal broadcaster and a phenomenal all-around person. So yeah, big ups to all those people who took part in it. I had a chance to record a lot of it, which is really nice because hopefully you will get to hear some of the audio from this groundbreaking event on episodes to come. So do look out for that. But like I said, alas, on to the bad news. A lot of you, I'm sure, have already heard this at this point, but sadly, the CWHL, the Canadian Women's Hockey League, just announced this morning on Sunday, March 31st, that they're shutting down as of May the 1st this year. They announced it via a press release put out today. The players and coaches and team directors really only had about a couple hours before most of the public even got wind of this. And then the league also announced it as a lot of the top-level elite women's players were on their way to Finland to compete in the international competition. So the timing just feels really, really heartbreaking. But here's just a little bit uh, from the CWHL statement. So it says, The board of directors of the Canadian Women's Hockey League has made the decision to discontinue operations effective May 1st, 2019. Unfortunately, while the on-ice hockey is exceptional, the business model has proven to be economically unsustainable. New management led by Jaina Hefford and the new board put in place in summer and fall 2018 retrospectively, or respectively rather, have proactively worked with our contract staff, players, GMs, industry partners, and corporate sponsors to establish an adequate revenue base, good governance, and high quality hockey on the ice. Unfortunately, the business model that has been the foundation of the league is not sustainable financially. So I think everyone in the women's hockey world is just in shock and reeling from this news today and not quite sure yet how to sit with it. Although a lot of the players are really hinting at the fact that they want to stay optimistic and move forward to find a solution. While lots of people are adding their takes on Twitter and many are much more grounded than mine, what this speaks to for me is the shameful lack of media coverage that a lot of the bigger outlets just thinking of CBC, for example, uh, were able to offer for covering the CWHL, as well the lack of willingness for the men's clubs that have partnerships with the CWHL teams like the Calgary Flames, Toronto Maple Leafs, or Montreal Canadiens to actually step up to avoid this. This is not what being a good partner looks like. So in the weeks ahead, do tune in to women's sports media for some solid coverage coming on this. I know the Burn It All Down podcast will be dissecting it, as well as the Founding Four podcast mentioned earlier. Do check those out as well as I'm sure many others out there. And on that kind of sad note, we are just about out of here, but rest assured we will continue to follow and provide coverage on this story. I want to thank our guest on this episode, Chris Barker from Anti-Flag. Music on this episode was by Anti-Flag, The Riverdales, Justin Sane, The Clash, Tribe Called Quest, and our theme music is by Chisimba. And of course, we got to thank our Patreon supporters, Anne, Aiden, Jeff, Nick A, Jeremy, Andrew, Nick T, Ellen, Sam, Grill, Dasha, Dan, 
Shona, and Amber and Bruce. If you want your name amongst that list, just hit us up, patreon.com slash changing on the fly. We'll be back very soon with more episodes. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Sass. And we're the host of The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. It's a podcast where we're going to talk about, well, sports. Specifically, what we do look at is what makes an athlete be the best that they can be. So not only do we talk to some athletes, but we talk to the people behind the athletes, from trainers to sports psychologists, you name it, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about other issues revolving sports as well, hot button issues like concussions, maybe doping. Give us a listen. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Candace Pye, and I'm the host of Gal Chat, a weekly podcast where we give you our feminist takes on everything from sex and dating to politics and pop culture. It's a show that updates you on controversial headlines, dives into the latest movies and TV, and discusses things like Tinder troubles and Me Too struggles. I put out a new show every Tuesday with special guests, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Subscribe, rate, review, and follow us on social media at Gal Chat Pod.